0: Well, according to the Marist Institute for Public Opinion, uh, only about 40% of Americans actually make some kind of New Year's Resolution. And if you do a Google search on Christianity and resolutions, you're going to find lots of opinion that there's wisdom in that, like Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan, or there's not wisdom in that. We should just live for the Lord and not make resolutions. And so I'm just, for my own curiosity, to start off the New Year, let's do a little uh, survey of the room in here. How many of you make annually some kind of New Year's resolutions, goals, development plans, something like that? Raise your hand if you're a part of that. Yep, my hand is up. We're the hard chargers in the room. Amen? Right, And so uh, I make a plan every year, a development plan, kind of a personal growth plan. I don't accomplish everything that's on that plan in in any year, but I accomplish more than if I had no plan every single year. I heard a quote, I listened to a podcast this week, it was a leading expert on discipleship, and here's what he said. He said, if you have no plan, then your plan is not to do it. And so I'm a big planner, I love New Year's, I love all of that. Let me give you another uh, stat about resolutions, and this one varies a little bit depending on who you read, and I'm going to see if anybody in the room can guess this, alright? So, what percentage of Americans actually keep their New Year's resolutions for an entire year? What percentage of Americans actually keep New Year's resolutions for an entire year? Alright, so kind of get a number in your mind. Now, turn and tell the person next to you what you think that percentage is. Just go ahead and share that Whatever you think that is, all right? Now, as God and your neighbor as your witness, all right? Did anybody in the room guess 8%? Raise your hand if you guessed 8%. You two pe- Listen, here's the good news. You just won a free autographed picture of me and a free download of today's podcast, right? Christmas hasn't ended for you. Congratulations. of the people actually keep their New Year's resolutions. And just a little sneak peek, uh, next week's message is titled, How to Keep Your Resolutions. So we're going to look at that uh, next week. And so even though um, more than half of Americans do not make a New Year's resolution, and uh, 90% of the ones who do, do not keep their New Year's resolution, uh, I'm going to make the following claim as it relates to the new year. Here's a claim, all right? There is not a person in the room this morning who does not hope that 2019 contains more blessings in it than 2018 did. Every single survey you read in the field of sociology says that in general, most people think that their future is going to be better than the life that they're currently living. In other words, they feel their life is going to be more blessed in the coming year. No one in the room is saying, you know what? Life has been so incredibly blessed, I'm looking for actually a downturn in the new year just to keep things into perspective, right? Nobody is thinking like that. Nobody is saying that. And here's the good news this morning. Uh, Whether you make New Year's resolutions or not, if you want to live a life that's blessed of God, the good news is this. There are some guidelines for the life that God blesses in Psalm chapter 1. So let me invite you to take your Bibles, your phones, your tablets Whatever you're using this morning, and uh, turn to Psalm chapter 1 with me. Now, as you're turning there, uh, let me give you a little uh, disclaimer on this idea of a blessed life. And uh, the reason is because there's so much that gets out of balance when you talk about the life that God blesses. And so the disclaimer is this. Adhering to the principles that we're going to walk through uh, in Psalm chapter 1 does not guarantee a life that's devoid of trials or sufferings. And that's a very important disclaimer because apart from an understanding of that, then basically uh, we turn God into a cosmic vending machine. And I'm going to put in these certain choices and this certain lifestyle into the machine. And, God, you're expected to produce a certain kind of life based upon the deposits that I have made. There's a popular phrase in American culture uh, around Christian circles, and it goes something like this. Do right by God, and he'll do right by you. Now, here's the problem with that. That's nowhere in the Bible. And sometimes we can live a life that's pleasing to God, but God in his divine sovereignty and his uh, wisdom allows suffering or trials into our life so that he can grow us and mature us. That's over and over in the Bible. That is one of the tools that God uses to grow our faith. So don't walk out of here thinking, you know what, I've got a foolproof plan in Psalm 1 on how to live the most blessed life that's devoid of any kind of suffering or trials that God allows into our lives. That's not what Psalm 1 is teaching, but what you do have in Psalm 1 is this. You've got two options or two ways to live, and based on the choices you make, there will be two outcomes, both in the the short term and in the long term. So let's look at those together. Psalm chapter 1, we're going to read all six verses this morning. Psalm 1 says this. That's so why I titled the message, How to Have Your Best Year Ever. And that great truth in verse 3 there, verse 4 says, The ungodly, though, are not so. They look like the chaff which the wind drives away, and therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall Perish. Now, let me give you a little context on the book of Psalms as a whole so you can understand uh, Psalms as a general rule of thumb. Psalms basically provide wisdom on how to relate to God. Proverbs uh, provide wisdom on how to relate to each other. And so, put another way, Psalms provide vertical wisdom for living, and Proverbs provide horizontal wisdom for living. And Psalms are written in Hebrew poetry. Now, when I think of poetry, I'm bound by what I understand about poetry because I think that means certain words have to rhyme for it to be a poem, right? But in Hebrew poetry, it, it's not. that's the way it works. It's not structured that way. Basically, in Hebrew poetry, it is, uh, repeats and rearranges thoughts rather than sounds that rhymes. And so Psalm 1 is basically six verses of rearrangement or repeating uh, two ways to live. And Psalm 1 clearly teaches there are principles that God has given That I can apply to my life to position myself to receive all the blessing that God wants to pour out into my life. Now, we don't teach prosperity, theology, health and wealth, all those things on one end of the spectrum. However, on the other end of the spectrum, we also uh, be careful not to forget that our God is a father who loves to give good gifts to his children according to Matthew chapter 7 verse 11. And so as we dive into this passage this morning and talk about having the best year ever and positioning ourselves to receive all the blessings that God wants to pour out into our lives, I think it would be helpful if we could just stop and just define the word blessed biblically. Here's why. Have you noticed that anything and everything in our current culture is hashtag blessed? Have you noticed that? I don't care what it is. Every athlete, uh, if you look at any their Twitter or anything like that, blessed to receive an offer. I'm blessed to do this. I'm blessed to eat at White Castle this weekend. That is a blessing, by the way, all right? But anything and everything is hashtag blessed. But here's the deal what does it mean? Biblically, to be blessed by God. The word blessed here in verse 1 uh, translates the Hebrew word as sure, which has the idea uh, uh, of happiness or uh, contentment. And that word comes from a Hebrew word which at its root meaning is the idea to be straight. Or to be right. and So let me put that all together for you. What verse 1 is saying is blessed is the man. Basically what he's saying here is the the person whose life is content, uh, who is straight with God or right with God. That's what he means. Blessed means in verse 1. So when you say, I am blessed, what you're declaring biblically is, I am straight with God. I am right with God. That's what it means to be blessed. According to Hebrews chapter 1, it means supremely happy totally content. Matter of fact, the Hebrew, the word blessed here, it's plural. He's think like, who cares? That's a grammar lesson, right? It's plural. What that means is this. It denotes either a multiplicity of blessings or an increase in the intensity of blessings. Now, to me, that's exciting because here's what this means right off the bat. That our Father is not greedy in the distribution of his blessings. That he wants to intensify those and pour those out in multiple ways, blessings upon blessings. Now, if you're listening, say amen. Here's why that's good news in the very first psalm, to think about that, is that God wants to bless your life. Now, I don't know about you, but raise your hand if you want to get in on that action. Would you just raise your hand? And if your hand's not raised, you should repent because you showed up at church drunk, all right? I want to get blessed. I want to position myself to whatever it is that God wants to pour out on my life and receive all that God has for me. And so being blessed is not the absence of trials, and Psalm 1 is not a special formula to strong-arm God and creating this kind of life that you've always desired. Uh, but it also does picture uh, the way that we can live and the choices we make to receive all that God has, or more accurately, not forfeit all that he wants to do in our lives. So that's a little context here to get into this psalm. And so what you're going to find here in Psalm 1 is this, is there are some choices that position us to be blessed. And the first choice is this, choose carefully the company you keep. Choose carefully the company uh, you keep. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Every single person, Who is a follower of Christ, uh, has a a position in Christ, and as a result of that, they have a spiritual inheritance, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And so what that means is just because if I'm a follower of Christ, there are some things that God will bless me, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done on my life. Behalf, And so some of the blessings uh, in my life have nothing to do with the choices I make and solely are given to me by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. My forgiveness, all Him. My access to the Father, all Him. The comfort of the Holy Spirit, all Him. So those blessings are given to me because I belong to Jesus Christ. Now if you don't understand that, uh, the very quickly you can drift Into a prideful mindset that says, every good thing in my life is a result of me and the choices that I have made. Let me let you know a secret about the grace of God. There are times in your life where God will bless you in spite of you. And so we have blessings because we are a child of God. We have an inheritance uh, in Him. But here's where the context is crucial. Psalm 1 is a beatitude. Now, when you think of Beatitudes, you think of this narrow little section, the New Testament, you know, defined as the Beatitudes. And so it's not obviously a part of that, but it is a Beatitude. And a Beatitude pronounces blessings upon a certain group of people. And so there are certain blessings that God wants to pour out on your life that are directly connected to the choices you make. So some things God just says, hey, you belong to Jesus And in him, you've received a spiritual inheritance. In him, you have a position of righteousness. And because his name is on the back of your jersey, you've got some blessings just because you're in him. However, there are some conditional blessings that based upon the choices you and I make, we position ourselves to receive those. Or in not doing that, we forfeit the things God wants to do in our life that we would define as blessings. And so some of these blessings are conditional based on the choices you and I make. And so let me show you that right from the text. Go back uh, to verse 1. Blessed is the man. Remember what it means? Straight with God is the man. Right with God is the man. And then he gives this little word here, who. And then he lists all these things. And so he doesn't say just say, blessed is every man, blessed is every person who believes in God. He says, no, no, blessed is the man who, and then he gives some actions. And so the reason the word who is in there is it's to show that these types of blessings being described in Psalm 1 are conditional in nature. Blessed is the man who does these things at the end of verse 1. And so these are conditional things that that are being offered here uh, in verse 1. And so there are some blessings that are unconditional because I'm in Jesus, but these are not those. Basically, what he's saying is, hey, uh, in verse 1, he's saying there are particular blessings if you choose carefully the company that you keep. Go back to verse 1. What's he say? Blessed is the man who, and then what's he say? Walks not counsel the ungodly nor stands in the path of sinners nor sits in the seat of the scornful basically what he's saying here you'll never receive all the conditional blessings God wants to pour out in your life if you consistently keep company with foolish people That is a parallel truth to one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. I think everyone should memorize this verse. I think particularly teenagers should memorize this verse. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 58, which says this. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. That's the same idea here in Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. And he lists three categories of fools in verse 1. Now, when you first read this, basically what you're thinking is this. It's just three different ways they kind of say the same thing. Those three things there at the end of verse 1, it's kind of all the same thing. He's just repeating them kind of the same way for the sake of emphasis so we get the point. But here's the deal. That is not true. Uh, This is a series of progressive movements away from God at the end of verse 1. And let me just tell you this. Any step away from God is a step away all the conditional blessings God wants to pour out in your life. The end of verse 1 is progressive In nature. So the blessed man or woman does not do certain things according to verse 1. He does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. He does not stand in the path of sinners. He does not sit in the seat of the scornful. Three verbs walk, stand, and sit. And those are progressive in nature. Here's a little side note this is free. Sin is always progressive in nature. You know, the great lie of temptation is this is that I can kind of just dip my toes in the water, I can just kind of look over the edge, but I can put the brakes on it any time I want. That I can get the buzz off of whatever it is that excites my flesh, but I can put the brakes on any time I want. I won't fall off the cliff like those other fools. Listen, sin is always progressive. Someone very wise said this, sin will always take you Further than you want to go, cost you more than you want to pay, and keep you longer than you want to say, stay. Sin never retreats. That's why the Puritan writer John Owen said this, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And So let's break down these three progressive steps away from the blessed life. Step number one is what he says. He said, "Blesses is the man who, number one, walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Now the word walk here just means to go along with or agree with. The word counsel means a viewpoint or a way of thinking, and the ungodly is anyone whose counsel is against the counsel of God and his ways. And so to put it simply, what he's saying here is this, is that a person who walks away from the blessed life is a person who's willing to go along with or entertain any kind of thinking or conversation that is contrary to the wisdom of God's word. And you hear something that someone says and. And you know that it doesn't line up with Scripture. However, they're telling you what you want to hear. They're reinforcing what you already want to do. And that's so appealing to you that you give an audience to that type of counsel. That's what's being described here in this first step. Your influencer or take advice from people who are not following the Lord openly or who pretend to be, but the fruit of their life proves otherwise. That's step number one. That I'm willing to go along with or entertain a thought or a viewpoint that is contrary to God's word. Step number one, away from the blessed life. Step two, what does he say at the end of uh, verse one? Who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Number two, nor who stands in the path of sinners. And so step two goes from thinking to behaving. The word stand in the Hebrew here, it means to stop and to be firm. The word Path uh, means a course of action or a journey. So the person that forfeits the conditional blessings of God in step one hears something. They know that it doesn't line up with, with truth, but it, but it reinforces what they already want to do, but they entertain it. You know, maybe it's not so bad. I mean, God forgives. God knows my heart that's one time won't hurt anything. And so they entertain in step one. In step two, they stand firm. They start participating in sinful patterns and habits. And so the steps away from the life that God blesses, number one, I listen and it appeals to me. Step two, I stand firm in a course of action or a journey. In step one, we think like the world. In step two, we start acting like the world. And so I think it. And then I participate in it, but then he goes on even further. What's he say at the end of verse 1? Nor sits in the seat of the scornful. The word sit here in the original Hebrew language has the idea of abiding or dwelling. So let me just paint this picture for you. In step 1, I hear it and I like it. It may not be God's counsel, but I am entertained with whatever the counsel is being offered to me. In step two, I start participating or dabbling in sinful practices. In step three, I've kicked off my shoes and I'm staying a while. This life suits me. When he talks about uh, the counsel uh, sitting in, in verse, the end of verse one, sits in the seat of the scornful. The scornful is this, it's anyone who with their life or with their words, mocks the wisdom of God's ways. That's what's being described here. It's a person who's settled down. They've become comfortable with the ways of the world. And so in step one, I listen and entertain ungodly counsel. In step two, I start participating in worldly or sinful or unwise activities. In step three, I've become so at home with that that I'm going to kick up my feet and stay a while. And I'm going to join in the company of those who mock or scoff God with their lifestyle. Those who say, God, I've got a better way to live. More joy, more satisfaction, more peace, more everything by living this way. Do You see the progression? Sin is always progressive one of the things that's always fascinated me on one end and confused me on the other are people who live a life uh, totally, uh, totally devoid of any of God's ways, t- totally rejecting the wisdom of God, totally rejecting the word of God, totally rejecting or dismissing the counsel of God, and then they come to this conclusion. There is no God because if there was a God, my life would be easier. Brings to mind two verses, both in Proverbs. Proverbs 19:3 says this people ruin their lives by their own foolishness and then are angry at the Lord. Can I just reread that and we can say amen to that? People ruin their lives by their own foolishness and then are angry at the Lord. I've got that that, that is such a striking verse, I've actually got, if you walked into my office, it's on a post-it note in the middle of my desk. I'm trying to memorize it. I'm going to use that in counseling. Proverbs 13:5 also says this, the way of the transgressor is hard. The way of the person who rejects God's counsel, the way of the person who dismisses a godly lifestyle, the way of the person who says, I've got my own path I'm carving, the way of that person is hard. In other words, it's absent of the conditional blessings of God. And so Psalm 1 says this, that the blessed man does not do certain things. There is a way he will not walk, a path he will not stand in, and a seat he will not sit in. Walk, stand, and sit have the idea of thinking, behaving, and belonging. And so the blessed person chooses to not do some things. That's choice number one. But the blessed life, the second choice is this, is to choose carefully the counsel of you heed. Now, if you're listening, say amen. You cannot miss this. We have clearly exegeted the text in verse 1 to show a progressing, progression of sin. I won't listen to it, I won't participate in it. I won't get comfortable with any lifestyle or counsel that is against the wisdom of God. We've clearly shown progression at the end of verse 1. Verse 2 also shows progression as well. Now, let me just say this as well about verse 1. Every single person who with their words or life mocks the counsel of God, according to verse 1, every single person, you look at them and you go, how, how did they get that way? How would they be so foolish? I, I, would, I would never do that. Listen, every one of those people started off entertaining ungodly counsel. Every one of them. And so if you let people speak into your life that have ungodly counsel, listen, you're on the path of progression away from God and the life that God blesses. And verse 2 shows progression as well, but it's toward the life that God blesses. Look at verse 2. What does he say in Psalm 1? But, or in contrast, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Listen, the life that God doesn't bless says, I I reject the counsel of God's word. I don't entertain godly counsel. I'm doing my own thing here, God. But in contrast, the life that God does bless delights in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. And so that phrase, the law of the Lord, is used repeatedly in Psalms to refer to the Word of God as a whole. The reason verse 2 starts off with the word but is to show a contrast between two different ways to live, two choices you make to receive all that God wants to bless you with. And the contrast is so striking here in verses 1 and 2. And so in verse 2, there's a progression as well. And the progression is... Uh, is this. What does he say? Go back to verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, but it progresses. And in his law, he meditates day and night. You see the progression there? It goes from delight, that he values the Word of God, he cherishes the Word of God, that all of a sudden he's just, but he's not content to stay there. He's actually uh, meditating on it day and night or continuously. And I'm going to explain these two ideas here. Delight is a response to the heart to the beauty and value of someone or something. And so this is a person who who hears the word of God and says, I see deep value in it. I delight in it. And here's the reality. Not everyone delights in the word of God. Do you know why? Because some people look at the word of God as rules to restrict them, when in reality, they're guardrails to protect them. But the person who delights looks at it and says, I don't find a restriction in that. I find freedom to live the life that God blesses. I delight in that. Now, let me tell you what it means to delight in God's word. In the Hebrew, uh, the word delight has the idea of desire, uh, pleasure, satisfaction. Listen to this. This is so interesting. The same Hebrew word for delight here in verse 2 is used in other places in the Old Testament to describe a man's delight in a woman. Tasha and I get along really well. Very few arguments or lo- what I like to refer to as intense moments of fellowship. Very few. But one of the things that I do uh, that she does not appreciate is that often I try to uh, rush her off the phone if she calls and I'm busy. And she'll say uh, something like this, in just the sweetest voice, she'll say, I feel like you're trying to rush me off the phone, stallion. It's not verbatim, that's a paraphrase. And I usually tell her, I say, You know why it feels that way? Because I am. That's what I tell her. Uh, does anybody else get in trouble for that? Am I the only one in here? Am I the worst husband in here? You got couples, right? And so uh, now, now but, but listen, contract, do you remember? When you first started dating your spouse, like the delight you had in getting to know them and, and all about them, what makes them tick and what they like and what, you know, all those kind of things. Listen, uh, you, you, you didn't, no one had to instruct you to slow down, to spend time, to rearrange your priorities to get to know them in the very beginning of that relationship. Listen, that is a picture of the person who delights in God's word. They willingly rearrange their schedule to make it a priority to engage with the word of God. Now, just a little side note, I love Tasha so much that now I can finish her sentences. while why I rush her along on the phone, alright? And so, the blessed person delights in God's word, and so because that is true, they go on to the step Two, which is to meditate on the Word of God. And the Word of God just starts to dominate their thoughts. It drives all the decisions. Its principles govern all their key relationships in every facet. One writer said this, Meditation is to reading what digestion is to eating. Chewing on the Word of God until it becomes a part of you. Meditation involves Focus, sustain, thought involves an act of the will. And so lots of people delight in the idea of God's word. Like, I'm a big fan of God's word. But few people make the transition to meditate on God's word. So let me tell you practically how that plays out when a person says, I delight in the word of God. But they don't get to the place of meditating on the word of God. Number one, they never stop to consider the wisdom of God's word in any given situation. That There are no decisions in their real life that they're living where they say, hey, because the Word of God has given wisdom, we're going to choose to do this in this scenario. They just never, they never, they like the idea of the Word of God. I would delight in it, but I'm not meditating. Never, that conversation never comes up in their life. Or it does, and they consider it, but, but here's where they land. Well, I know what the Bible says, but, I'm fill in the blank. Let me show you how easily this happens. To say I delight in the Word but not meditate uh, on the Word. Uh, People want God to bless their finances, uh, but yet they've yet to sit through a single Bible study on the subject. They've never signed up for Financial Peace University. They've never sat under the teaching of the 2,350 verses that deal with money and possessions in the Bible. But they would tell you they delight in the counsel of God's Word. They don't meditate on it. People want God to bless their marriage, but they could not point to a single passage in the Bible that defines what marriage should look like. They delight in the idea of God blessing their marriage, and they, they know that some God has some counsel for us, but they're not meditating on it because they can't find it. People want God to bless their children, uh, but then they trust in the wisdom of humanistic psychology to raise and disciple them. Listen, that's a person, all those scenarios, who says, I delight in the word of God. I see beauty and value in it, but they've yet to make the transition where they actually meditate on it day and night or continuously. According to verse 2, the man who experiences great blessing has a deep love for the Word of God. He not only delights in it, he meditates on it day and night. And so let me just tell you, how do you know when that's happened? You move from delight to meditation when the counsel of God's Word becomes the filter that all of life's decisions flow through. That whatever it is, whatever decisions you're making, a parent, an employee, a spouse, whatever it is, The Word of God becomes the filter that all those decisions flow through when I'm meditating on the Word of God day and night. And that's not always true, even among Christians. Listen, there's a fundamental difference between Christian counseling and biblical counseling. If a, person, if a counselor never opens up the Bible to use as their primary source of counsel, never directed one to meditate on the Word of God as their homework, listen, they may be a Christian counselor, but they're counseling you from their own wisdom, not the sufficient wisdom of God's Word. It's never filtering through any of the counsel they give you, even if they're a Christian, it happens all the time. True story. I know of an instance where someone went to a Christian counselor, and they get counseled their they, marriage had uh, suffered an affair, and one person had a hard time forgiving and moving forward. And this Christian counselor told them, they said, hey, the only way that you're ever going to be able to uh, put, uh, understand how much you've hurt them so that you can move forward in healing is for you yourself to go out and have an affair. Now, here's a Pro tip. That's not the formula for a blessed life. Here's another pro tip God's solution to your marriage is not someone else's spouse. Now, last one's free of charge, you're welcome. But the blessed person says, you know what? I'm just not going to delight in the idea of God's word. It's going to be the filter that every decision goes to. Now, here's the problem we think of meditation, we think of all kinds of weird things, do we not? People sitting in weird positions, making weird noises in rooms that have weird smells and have beads for doors, right? Is that what we think of? In Eastern meditation, the goal is to empty your mind. In biblical meditation, the goal is to fill your mind with the truth of God's Word. Here's the third choice that positions you to be blessed. Third choice is this. Evaluate with integrity the fruit of your life evaluate with integrity the fruit of your life. Now, if your life looks like verse 3, that's the blessed life. If it looks like verse 4, that's the opposite of the blessed life. Let's look at those verses quickly. Psalm 1 verse 3 says this, so the person, verse 2, who meditates and delights in the word of God, it's the filter for every decision they make. It governs all their relationships. What, what, what does that produce? It produces verse 3. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit uh, in in season whose leaf shall also not wither and whatever he does shall prosper. But the person who does not delight in the word of God, who does not meditate in the word of God, who listens to ungodly counsel, participates in ungodly activities and makes up peace with all those things, their life looks like verse 4. What does verse 4 say? The ungodly are not so. And here's a picture he paints, and I'll explain it. But they're like the chaff which the wind drives away. know what verse 3 is? It's a picture of a person whose roots are deep in the Lord and the wisdom of his word. And so when the storms of life come, they're not not blown over by that. Why? Because they've got deep roots. So verse 3 is a picture of a person who is stable and has the capacity to withstand the storms of life. It is a picture of uh, mental, spiritual, and emotional stability in every kind of situation. That's why he says, no matter the season... That person stands firm. Contrast that with verse 4. Now, what is chaff? Chaff is the shell around the kernel of a grain. And so in biblical times when they would want to separate, they would want to grind the kernel into flour to separate it from the shell, they would use a winnowing fork and they would uh, take it and throw it up in the air and the chaff was light. The grain was heavier. And so when they threw it up in the air and the wind came, it blew the chaff away And all they were left with was the kernel, which is what they wanted all along. Do you see the picture he's painting? He says a person who lives like verse 1, who does not delight in the law of the Lord, who does not meditate on it day and night, their life will be as unstable as chaff in the wind. When the storms of life come, and they will, they'll be blown away by them. There'll be no stability in their life. So let me tie this all together. So practical. The person who disregards the ways of God, verse 1, will have no stability in their life, verse 4. And it's even worse than that because verse 5 says when it comes time for eternal judgment, they won't have a leg to stand on. That's what verse 5 means. But the person who delights and meditates in the word of God, verse 2, will have a life of stability even in the strongest of storms, verse 3. And so do you want in this new year to stand firm and position yourself to receive all the blessings that God has for you? Then put your roots down this year deep in the word of God and start off by placing your faith in the son of God for the forgiveness of your sins. Would you bow your head this morning?